would invite you to join me in opening your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3, and specifically we're going to be looking tonight at Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 7 through 12, 7 through 12, as we continue on in the book of Ephesians, this letter written by Paul to a church that he himself had founded. Now we remember that um, prior to me standing up and preaching, or you guys know I should say, you all know that I, um, uh, we flash on the screen, prayer for illumination, it's in your folder as well, prayer for illumination. What are we actually praying for? We're praying that the Holy Spirit would illuminate us inwardly so that we would understand his word and I would be illuminated so that I would divide it aright and not send you off on tangents or say things that were clearly heretical or in error. But we are in even acknowledging that we need to pray for this. We're confessing that we need God's illuminating grace to open our eyes to understand the word. And that's something that's going to be touched upon in tonight's sermon, the need for light uh, in order to understand the gospel and in order to be able to proclaim the gospel aright. But before we go further into that, let's, uh, let us now join our hearts together and let's ask the Lord to do what we've been talking about, to illuminate us so that we might understand his word. God, our gracious Father, Lord, as we look into your word, we are struck with the truth that we are all blind and naked and dead by nature when we're brought into this world. Spiritually, we just don't perceive the truth of the gospel. And Lord, a man might study all of his life and yet never be able to come to a right understanding. We know that your son, Jesus, told the Pharisees that they searched the scriptures, but because they didn't know you and they didn't know your power, they never found the key to the scriptures, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is he whose coming was foretold, going all the way back to the fall, the seed of the woman, and then through the scriptures, the blessing to the nations, Jehovah Sidkinu, Emmanuel, God with us. Oh Lord, all of these titles and names pointed forward to the need that we have, the great need that we have for a Messiah, a Redeemer, someone who will stand in the gap for us and reconcile us to you. And we know, Lord, that unless we have your illuminating grace, we will never catch the thread or understand the word or have it applied in our lives. So we pray, Lord, we beg you, please give us your light that we might see by it. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 7 through 12. Remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power to me who am less than the least of all saints. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Whenever I think of the, uh, the London 
skyline, and you, you all know uh, I was born just outside of London, uh, I think of one particular place. I always, you know, in, in my mind, I, I try to reorient myself. I want to make Westminster Abbey the center of the skyline for me, but it just doesn't work. It, it really isn't, it isn't right. The center of the skyline in London is a domed church by the name of St. Paul's. There's a famous picture during the Blitz. You see London on fire, literally wreathed by smoke from the bombing that had gone on uh, the following night before. And there in the center is St. Paul's. And I'm very grateful that even in that secularizing nation, that beautiful church by Christopher Wren still stands and that they didn't, although there are some abominably ugly buildings that they have built in, uh, in London. You, you look at the skyline now, you're like, what is that, a giant Easter egg? Or anyway, yeah, the, uh, they at least did not obscure the view of this wonderfully beautiful church that the architect Christopher Wren had put in place to replace the earlier version of St. Paul's that had burned down. But what does that testify to? Well, it testifies to the fact that Paul is enormously, I mean famously, influential when it comes to the Western world. And when it comes to Christianity as well. I mean, consider this. Depending upon whether or not you think Hebrews was written by him, I, I raise my hand and I say I don't actually believe it was written by him. But regardless, either 13 or 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament were written by Paul. He was also used singularly by God, wasn't he, to bring the gospel to Europe, to bring the gospel to Asia Minor. The very fact that we're sitting here is in large part due to the fact that Paul shared the gospel throughout those regions, brought it far, far from where it began in Palestine under Roman rule. And yet, I mean, think about this. Here we have one of the most influential men who has ever lived. A man who even secular societies still have to acknowledge by the very buildings that surround them. And yet, he had very low views of himself, didn't he? Part of that, of course, was that Paul had been a persecutor of the church. He was somebody who had attacked Christianity. Like my, myself, he had hated Christians and hated Christianity. Uh, both of us shared that, unfortunately, prior to our conversion. And so he was amazed that he who had actually been used by the forces of darkness in persecuting Christ and his people, even putting them to death and imprisoning them, that he should be so honored as to be given the gospel. That amazed him. He never forgot the amazing grace that God had given. And throughout his ministry, we might think that as he went from, he was given success after success. Yes, he, he suffered terrible tribulation. This is a man who was, who was beaten, repeatedly shipwrecked, who was imprisoned, who was maltreated wherever he went. And yet the Lord blessed his ministrations with growth and, and with solid churches and with young men coming up and becoming ministers of the gospel in their own right. And yet we don't see Paul's opinion of himself growing and growing and growing. It's funny, you can actually trace it going through the New Testament. It seems to shrink. Uh, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, how does he speak of himself? He doesn't say to the Corinthians, I who showed up at your doorstep unbidden and yet preached the gospel to you against all odds and I was the one who brought the good news to you. You should think much of me. He said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, for I 
am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. The least of the apostles. He acknowledges that he's an apostle, but he says, I amongst them am the least. And then what we just read here in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, to me who am less than the least of all the saints. So this, this grace was given. So he starts off with least of the apostles. And then a little later on, he speaks of himself as least of the saints. And then finally, in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Chief of all sinners, first and foremost. So he does not increase his titles. Rather, his self-deprecation in his words increases as he goes on. Why does he do that? Is this false humility? Well, not at all. He throws himself on the pages of his letters in a humiliating way in order to show how great the gospel grace that he received was, how highly exalted he was, how unworthy of what he was doing he was. And he honestly thought of himself that way. He was a man who, like John the Baptist, had at the center of his being this acknowledgement, he, that is Jesus, must increase, I must decrease. The secret to his success is that Christ is becoming larger and larger, all in all, and that he is throwing the floodlight on Jesus Christ and turning the attention away from himself, having small thoughts of himself. He became, he said, as we read, a minister of the gospel, that is a diakonos, a servant of the gospel, one whose business, whose calling was to preach the gospel. This is the work in which he was engaged. It was the work that he devoted himself to, but it was a work he never thought that he was inherently worthy of. In fact, he said that although he was set apart in a special way to preach the gospel, particularly to the Gentiles, he just couldn't get over the fact that God chose him. Have you ever thought about that? In your own life, God chose you. God picked you. If you're a Christian today, he was the one who determined to show his love to you. And why? Why would he do that? Well, he can't get over it. The great persecutor of the church who was called upon to proclaim the grace, the love, the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ to the world. It's amazing. But It is also the fact that that God had graced him with talents and gifts and so on that allowed this to go on. And he doesn't boast in them himself. He's constantly saying that essentially anything that I've been given, any revelation I've been given is his gift. It's something he put in my hands. It's not something I deserve the credit for. It is something that I've I've learned over time that uh, one of of the things that I I try to dissuade people to do uh, from doing is is saying, you know, great job, pastor, whatever, or, or, or giving compliments like that. First off, you never know whether or not they're sincere. I've been complimented by people who slept through my entire sermon. You know, that's, uh, I was like, okay, um, I'm, I'm not going to call you on the carpet there, brother, but uh, you dreamt about my sermon? Is that what happened? It might have been better in here than, I, I don't know. Um, but I'm always mindful of what happened with John Bunyan. It's a, a famous scene. He had just finished preaching in Bedford, and uh, a young man ran up, and he said, that was probably the best sermon that's ever been preached in England. 
And John Bunyan said, I know, the devil told me as I was coming down. And I fear, I do fear, the thing I fear most of all are the seeds of sin in my own heart and the seeds of arrogance. I've seen so many promising young men be puffed up by their, their successes. And the people around them who unfortunately inflated them and they rose very, very high on tottering pedestals and then the devil brought them down. There is uh, a famous illustration of a young man like that who he had uh, he'd been a very prominent student in Cambridge. He'd studied for the ministry. He'd done very well. He was eloquent. He was gifted. He was uh, a handsome young man. And he was called upon to take over a prominent church in the Church of England. Now, this is back in the 1700s when they still had these high, I've, sometimes I've wanted one, but you know, one of those high altars where you look down on the congregation and, and so on and, and glare at them like John Knoxon. As they said of him, he would ding the pulpit to blads, hitting it and looking down upon them and, and so on. But uh, he had one of those pulpits and he ascended it in his finery, his robes and vestments and so on. And he went up proud as a peacock and he prepared to speak to the people. And it didn't come. He just stood there stuttering, trying desperately to grasp the point, the sweat pouring off of his forehead. He went on for a little while, and, and his relatives were there in the, in the front row watching this awful spectacle. People looking at their feet, shuffling, <clears throat> coughing. You know, that awful moment, that cringy moment that, that happens. And sitting through that for a while, finally he just gave up entirely, and he came down, utterly crestfallen. As low as you could be, he just slouched down the stairs and exited. And later on, the old rector whom he was replacing approached him. And the young man was disconsolate, sitting in the chair, staring at the floor. And he looked up at him and he said, what went wrong? And the old rector said, young man, if you had gone up the way you went down, then perhaps Christ might have gifted you with a sermon. And that's something that we need to remember. In the Christian faith, humility is all in all. Christ must be central. We have to follow the example. I mean, if Paul can properly understand how great the grace was that was given to him, this man who was more gifted than, than most of us could ever even dream of being, and yet if he could have such low thoughts of himself, how much will it take for us to have low thoughts as well? I think that amongst the greatest contradictions that can possibly exist in this world is the idea of a proud Calvinist. Someone who says, everything that I have is due to the sovereignty of God and how wonderful I am. It just makes no sense, but it's out there. But understand that when he speaks of himself in this mean way, he's actually exalting the gospel. He's talking about the greatness of the grace of God given to the chief of sinners, the least of the apostles. And having said that, he is acknowledging that his own worthlessness did not stop him from being appointed to that position of apostle to the Gentiles. Now that should encourage you in that it's not up to you to, to cultivate within yourself these, these great gifts and graces. It is not up to you to, to ascend to the heights in order to be useful in the kingdom. God can use even the lowliest of instruments the pots of clay within the household to glorify his name. 
And none of us should ever stop from saying, I can be used in the, or say rather to God, I can't be used in the kingdom because I am not this or I am not that. That happened, didn't it, in the Bible? Moses says, no, I'm sorry, I can't be, I can't be the mediator and the man who leads your people out of Egypt because I'm not eloquent. And God says, rightly, who made you, Moses? Come on. Jeremiah does exactly the same thing. And he says, I formed you for this. In the very womb, I knew you. I regenerated you there. I have been developing you. I'm the man who made you for this task. Don't tell me what you can't do. If we will simply be available and used by God, then we will be. Well, Paul wants to direct the, opinion, uh, the attention rather, of these Ephesians to the unsearchable, as he puts it, unsearchable riches of Christ, the astonishing, the boundless treasuries of grace. We can think of the, the great amounts of money that have been accumulated in the world, the, the riches, for instance, that uh, many of the Eastern potentates had and so on. Uh, as rich as Croesus used to be a, uh, a, uh, a byword, Croesus was a, a king of Lydia, and he had, uh, he had taken so much gold or accumulated so much gold to himself that uh, men were amazed. They, they simply could not believe how much he had. But yet, <laughs> the riches of Christ are greater still. And unlike gold, they are not fading they are not things of this world that will, will pass away. And all of these riches, Paul says, were unexpectedly given to the Gentiles. So they are shown how great this gospel message is, how greatly it should be embraced. We, we are so eager to talk, aren't we, about things that are worthless. We'll talk about sports and politics and brands and, and Celebrity influencers. I am absolutely amazed at, at the rise of the impact of, of somebody who can make a TikTok video and do a dance, and then suddenly they become the all-in-all all for our culture. The things that occupy and captivate us these days are of such little worth. And yet, what Paul is talking about to the Gentiles is something of eternal value, something of infinite worth, the unsearchable riches of Christ, in him, we see the fullness of the Godhead, he says. The, 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 all of the divine glories and perfections are brought together. They dwell in him. The fullness of grace and pardon and sanctification and salvation, they all come to him. Everything else compared to Christ is less, infinitely less. And he says he alone in all the universe can satisfy the soul. There are things that can satisfy our appetites for a little while, but only Christ can satisfy the soul and that forever. And his calling was to make this known to the Gentiles. And indeed, he says, all, to make this known to all, the Gentiles and the Jews. That's a way of, of saying all of the nations of the world this is open to some from every race and tribe and tongue, this, this good news is going to be embraced by, and he is going to bring it to him. He's going to make the world see. And the word used in verse 9, take a look at verse 9 with me, if you would, of chapter 3 there. He says, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God. Now that word there, see, is photizo. It means to, to shed light. To He's going to illuminate. It's that word there, illuminate, to shine as a, a luminous body does in the darkness, like a star in the sky, uh, a candle in a darkened room, to impart light so that men might see. 
And he says he's bringing this gospel light into the darkness and so on. The church, therefore, he says, is compared to a candlestick or a star in the darkness. And our calling is to dispense light to the world. Do you think that way of your church? There are so many people who think of uh, the church as, as merely a convenience, as a place that they go to to spend time with others and to, to have a, an experience or something like that. Do you think of yourself as part of an organization whose calling is to shed light, not just here in Fayetteville, but in your own homes, around you, with your neighbors and so on, and then abroad in places like Uganda and Rwanda and, and uh, even South Sudan and, and areas like that all over the world. Do you think of yourself as bringing the candle into the darkness? That is what he says. The office of a minister is to dispense light. What light? The light of his own opinions, the light of politics, the light of social justice, the light of all of the things that that take up our time, light of music <laughs> anecdotes, uh, let me tell you about my grandmother and stuff like that. Is that the calling of the minister? No, the calling of the minister, the very office, is called upon to dispense light in a dark world, the light of the gospel, the knowledge of the gospel, and to, through the preaching of the word, accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, to illuminate men inwardly. And this idea that the gospel is the light of the world is a thread that we see throughout scripture. It doesn't simply pop up in Paul. He's not the one who invented it, but rather he is the one who is continuing it and sees his role as dispensing it. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Isaiah 49. Isaiah, you'll find Isaiah located in the Old Testament. Just before Jeremiah. And there's starting with verse 6. And this prophecy of the coming of the Messiah and what he would do. Isaiah 49 and chapter 6. Indeed, he says, this is the Lord. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Here in Isaiah 49, what is the Lord saying? He's saying, it's too small a thing for me to let you save merely the, the remnant in Israel. He's saying to Christ, you will be the light to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the ends of the earth, the thing that illuminates the world. The light of the world is Jesus and his gospel. Isaiah 49. And then in Luke 2 and verse 32, you remember old Simeon is presented with the infant Christ. And we hear what's called the nunc divinis. Now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace. He holds Christ and he confesses as he prays over him. And in Luke 2.32, he's a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. This is the light that's spoken of in the Old Testament. And then Paul as he is ministering with Barnabas, talking about what they're doing as they're, they're preaching to the Gentiles. He says in Acts chapter 13 and verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, he came to bring the light of God the light of Christ Jesus and his gospel to the entire world. One of the most wonderful experiences in my life, I don't really think if there's, there's much that can compare to it, is seeing the light go on in the life of someone. 
as they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as they're inwardly illuminated, you see new life, new joy, new light in their very countenances. The old things die, the old darkness flees, for light has taken its home in their own hearts. And everything changes. They see the world differently by the light of Christ. That's something that we're supposed to do. And Paul is going to be preaching not just on what God did in sending the gospel light into the world, but also in how that gospel light and how our changed view of everything, it shapes our perceptions and how we should live. He's going to open that up as he goes through Ephesians. But he speaks of this light as something that was once hidden, now revealed, that apocalypsis that we were talking before. And it is like the light of the dawn breaking. That light is obscured by the curvature of the earth. And then you see the sun coming up suddenly, that which was hidden for a while. And yet, inevitably, it was going to come. It was always God's plan that the dawn would break, just as it's his plan that dawn, unless Christ comes back, dawn will come tomorrow. The light will break upon the earth. It's dark outside, but the darkness will be driven away at dawn by the light. And sunrise is a glorious glorious event to watch in so many places on earth not so much here in Fayetteville I must admit but I've been to some places and seen some glorious sunrises for instance if you ever get a chance and I'm hoping that some or many of you will to travel to Kapchora in Uganda to TBI which is in the mountains and there if you turn as you come out of the, um, the, the guest area and you turn to your left you'll see the sun coming up in the morning and breaking, and it is glorious. It really is something to be seen. You can't look at it and not be impressed unless you're blind. If you're blind, then the most glorious sunset in the world is going to make no impression on you whatsoever, is it? And so what does a gospel minister do? He brings light to the blind, to those who could not see And if we don't see how glorious the gospel is, I have to tell you this, it just indicates that we're still spiritually blind. This message that Paul brings is the most important thing that has ever been preached, that has ever been shared, that has ever been given to the world by God. The Old Testament and the New Testament declare that. So therefore, if you don't see the light of it, if you don't see how amazing it is, if it doesn't fill your soul with a a thrill and a joy, it means you've got a problem. You're blind. You're still in that condition of spiritual blindness. You still need the dawn to break. You need prayer. You need the Holy Spirit. You need help. And that's what ministers are sent into the world to do, to share this. And that's why Paul labored the point that it was God who had brought them from spiritual death, spiritual darkness, to spiritual life and to light. He is the instrument. He's the one who regenerates. He's the one who eliminates and so on. It's his grace. It's his grace. It's his grace. And now we see the illumination of men's eyes so that they might see how great the gospel is, accept it by faith. And he's saying to these Ephesians, isn't it wonderful how he has been operating in your hearts and your lives by such a wretch's eye through his ministry to you? God has given you such a gift, something that, that's indescribable, something that not even the angels knew about. He's told you about the coming of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that... Isn't that glorious? Isn't that a wonderful thing? Now, I I could go on about how in verse 10, um, 
One of the things that some theologians have done is they've, uh, in verse 10, they've, they've found uh, evidence for superlapsarianism. I'm, I'm actually not going to do that, but understand <laughs> um, that there is a debate about the decrees of, of salvation in God's mind, whether or not he created the universe in order for uh, the panoply of, re of redemption to be taken place and save people. And I know I'm confusing people right now. So I'm just going to step away from that, but understand that the superlapsarian, infralapsarian uh, argument often hinges here. But understand this. God did not create the universe specifically to display his glory in the salvation and perdition of men. Uh, that's something that happens, okay? Uh, it was God's creation of the universe that he might have a, a people to himself and that he might redeem them at the greatest possible cost. But the intent of what Paul is saying here is that he, when he speaks of, uh, in verse nine, uh, 10 there, and I would encourage you to take a look at it, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. He's talking about his, he's been speaking for the whole time about his conversion, his call to apostleship. To him, grace was given to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, to teach men about the fellowship of the koinonia of salvation in order that through the church, and this is the amazing thing, we talk, we talk so poorly of the church, we think of it as a small thing, but it's through the church that God makes his wisdom known. He shares his light. He changes the world through the church and through its preaching. And so it's, it's an amazing thing. He says that the angels are amazed at what God is doing through the church and the gospel that he's preached through his people, the fellowship. You know, it, it's such a shame. The, the, the angels are amazed by the gospel and so often we are bored by the gospel. Again, what's the problem? Well, it's not the gospel. If angelic beings, if heavenly powers, if principalities, if demons are appalled, angels are amazed and overwhelmed, and we're sitting there like, uh -huh. that's our problem. It's something within us. And sometimes it happens to professing Christians that they begin to forget how amazing the gospel is. And they begin to think that, as we discussed this morning, the things of the world are more important or that they can give them what they want. They can't. They can't. The exalted and wonderful nature of the gospel should be something that gives us the, the most amazing feeling within us. Something that I can't explain to those who haven't, haven't felt it. But he is throwing, what is Paul doing? He's throwing the, the, the amazing mercy of God before the, the, the Gentiles. He's showing the value of the gospel. Saying even the angels are amazed by what God did here. The exhibition of God's mercy and his wisdom and the way that he has he's been building up from before the creation of the world to this point where his son would be manifested so that we might be this glorious assembly uh, praising him and worshiping him forever that is amazing and what then is the result of this glorious gospel. Well, there's a wonderful summary that was given by Charles Hodge. He says this, hence is the consequence of this accomplished work. We have in him 
boldness and access with confidence, i.e. free and unrestricted access to God as children to a father. We come with the assurance of being accepted because our confidence does not rest on our own merit, but on the infinite merit of an infinite Savior. It is in Him we have this liberty. We have this free access to God. We believers, not any particular class, a priesthood among Christians to whom alone access is permitted, but all believers without any priestly intervention other than that of one great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He says, isn't it amazing? You can go directly to God. You no longer need the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies once a year, first making atonement for his own sins and then coming out and, and, and spreading, the, the blood on the, or spreading the blood on the mercy seat there and then going and sanctifying the people of God. You can actually go into the throne room of grace yourself. You can approach the mercy seat. And this is the amazing point that Paul makes. You can approach the mercy seat. You can approach the, the very throne of the creator of the universe, the one who sustains it, the one who spread out the universe and yet is not contained by it. You can go to his throne with fearlessness. Fearlessness. Not a worry at all about what you're doing. Not with, with trembling as ancient people would approach a, would, would approach a king. You remember the story of Esther, how there's a critical point where the Jews are about to be annihilated by the order of uh, the wicked Haman, the Agagite that the king has signed off on. And uh, Mordecai, her uncle, comes to her and he says, if you don't speak for the people, it's, you know, the Lord will find some other way to save his people. He always does. But you were raised up for such a time as this. So what does she say? In Esther 4.16, she says, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. What's her great hope? She's saying, pray for me, that when I enter into the, home, into the throne room, unbidden by the king, he will extend the golden scepter to me and show me his mercy, and I'll be allowed to approach and speak to him. Because going into his presence unbidden was a death penalty offense. And therefore, it was with great fear and only with tons of prayer that she was able to make this approach in the first place. Brothers and sisters, that's not us. Not at all. We do not even have to wait and hope that the golden scepter will be extended towards us because we are children of the king. Do you understand that? In your adoption, you've become a child of the king. You can go into the presence of your father God at any time and lay your soul's problems before him or praise him as you want. There was a witticism uh, that was told in England after the uh, coronation. Two men were, were arguing. This is the coronation, I'm sorry, of uh, Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, Charles III hasn't yet been coronated. But um, they were arguing in a pub over who was the, who was the most powerful person in England now. One said, well, it's the queen, isn't it? I mean, she's, she's the ruler of the empire. She's, she's in charge of everybody. She's got all the power. She's the most powerful. And his friend said, no, no, no. You don't understand at all. It's, uh, it's Charles and Anne. Those were her, her toddler children. They're the most powerful people in the kingdom. And he said, what are you talking about? That's, that's crazy. They're just, I mean, he's a prince and princess, but they're not the powerful. And he says, no, 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 I can prove it to you. They're the only people in the entire world who can awaken the queen and command her to bring them a glass of water. And she's got to do it. <laughs> Therefore, they're the most powerful. And I said, oh, I see your point. We are like that. 
we can go into the presence of the king of the universe at any time and ask of what we have need of. And he has said, because you are my children, because of what Christ has done, I will hear you. And I will give you what you have need of. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? We have this free access to God with full confidence and acceptance because of Christ. And if we have faith in Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear. Now let me leave you with one one thing to, to dwell upon. Charles Hodge wrote it this way. He said, This is the great question which every sinner needs to have answered. How may I come to God with the assurance of acceptance? The answer given by the apostle and confirmed by the experience of the saints of all ages is by faith in Jesus Christ. It is because men rely on some other means of access, either bringing some worthless bribe in their hands or trusting to some other mediator, priestly or saintly, that so many fail who seek to enter God's presence. If you would go to God, if you would know his peace, if you would know the glories of the gospel, if you would be illuminated inwardly, you have to go through Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to the Father. If you would be reconciled to him and know, honestly, the contentment that can only come through faith in Christ, you must go. You must go. There are so many who hesitate, so many who put it off, so many who doubt. But I tell you this, the testimony of the word, the testimony of experience, my own testimony, is there is no other way. You must go. And I beg you to do so before it's too late. Let's go before him now. God, our gracious Father, we do thank you for the manifold ways that you have blessed us with the gospel. It should amaze us that you were so good to people like us who didn't deserve it. But Lord, I pray that you would cause us to to dwell upon your amazing grace, to see the things of this world that stand against us, those afflictions that we go through, sometimes which, which are hard, as light and momentary and not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Oh Lord, please, Let it be the case that our eyes are open and we see the glorious dawn of Christ and his gospel.